afternoon, and this is our second case on the docket today. Um, our court martial, Mr. Richard Vermilliard, is here with us today, and uh, I'm John Tyson. To my right is Judge Toby Hampson. To my left is Judge Jeff Carpenter. As was announced in the earlier case, uh, all three of us are proud graduates of this law school, and we're very pleased to be back at Campbell today to hear the second case. Are there any preliminary matters to come before we begin from either side? No, Your Honor. Okay. Anything? Okay, well then we'll call the case of Singleton versus the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services. Is the appellant present? Yes, Your Honor. You ready to proceed? Yes, Your Honor. Okay. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. May it please the court. Josh Newman for the appellants. I'd like to reserve 10 minutes of my time for rebuttal. All right. North Carolina's Certificate of Need Law grants a single private entity, Carolina East, an exclusive right to run operating rooms in the Craven Jones Pamlico area. In his complaint, Dr. Singleton alleged that banning him from competing with Carolina East doesn't lower costs, doesn't increase access to, access to care, and doesn't benefit real patients in any way. Is Dr. Singleton really banned from, from competition? There, I mean, there's, no, there's nothing to prevent him, for example, for, from uh, either seeking to, to amend uh, the need determinations and or then apply for, for a, a CON once, the, once that need is adjusted. Yes, Your Honor, he is banned through at the very earliest 2025. Is there not a process to, to, to request amendment of the, of the need? Oh, he could submit a, a petition in July. ORD determinations are made two years in advance. A petition would only adjust the need determination in a proposed SMFP. So the next year's SMFP, 2023, would then be amended if he filed a successful petition. And then two years after that, he could then maybe apply for the con that became available. Again, if he succeeded. So at the very earliest, there's no way Dr. Singleton can enter this market through at least 2025. And it's that system that the trial court held couldn't possibly violate the North Carolina Constitution. Have you challenged the timelines of the statute? I'm sorry, Your Honor. Have you challenged those timelines in your brief? No, this isn't a challenge to the administrative process itself. It's a, it's a challenge to the requirement that Dr. Singleton get a con in the first place. Right, so the fact that, that there's a process there and it would take two to three years before that would come in place, you're not you're not challenging that as, as irregular or anything if the con law is constitutional. Oh, that's right, that's right, Your Honor. Now the trial court held that our three claims, Article 1, Section 19, Substantive Due Process, in Article 1, Sections 32 and 34, anti-monopoly and anti-special privileges, that we failed to state a claim under all those provisions. That was error and this court should reverse. I'll first explain why Dr. Singleton stated a claim under the law of the land clause. And I'll then explain why he stated claims under the other two provisions. Well, before you get to the specific constitutional clauses, I, I sort of have this, this broader question, right? Of, of, um, <laughs> You know, a, a lot of times the, the judicial branch is, is sort of uh, accused of wading into policy debates, you know, under sometimes under the guise of, of constitutional 
uh, arguments, but um, obviously sometimes there are policies that are simply unconstitutional, right? So, but, you know, as, as a, we have to draw these lines and figure out, you know, where do we draw the line between what is simply a policy debate that should be taken up with the General Assembly, and where does, you know, where does that policy debate cross the line and to become a, a, a truly constitutional issue? So, you know, where, where would you have us draw that line in this case? Well, I think that the first response and the easiest response is that the legislature can't have a policy of creating monopolies. The legislature can't have a policy of granting special privileges not in consideration of public services. And in the Aston Park case, after the court declared that the prior con law violated Article 1, Section 32 and 34, it explained this isn't a policy decision we're making. We're not questioning the need determination the Medical Care Commission has made. We're saying that the state can't give an agency authority to exclude somebody from a market just to protect incumbents from competition. And that's exactly what's happening here. Now, you're making an as-applied challenge to the con as opposed to a facial challenge, correct? That's, yes, right. Do you concede that the issue of the facial validity of the statute has already been ruled upon and this court is bound by that determination? Yes, it's a little complicated because Aston Park, or sorry, Hope itself was uh, framed as an as-applied challenge by the plaintiffs, but then this court's decision in Hope seemed like it was a facial holding. But of course, this court didn't actually address the plaintiff's factual allegations, and the, court was, the case was decided on a motion for judgment on the pleadings, which means the factual allegations in the complaint were all the court could really look at. And have they were to be construed in your favor and all inferences to be given for your benefit, your client's benefit, correct? That's right. That's Tuber. That's Bubindas. That's the standard that the, current, the court currently has to apply. So did the court get it wrong? Do we need to wait and see? or, or? It, it, did they pull the trigger too early? What, what is your argument? Are you wanting us to send it back for a 12C, a 12B6 trial? You're referring to the trial court's decision, Your Honor? Yes. Yes. So the 12, that's what's before us. Yeah, that's right. I thought you were asking about The 12B6 decision itself that is something this court should send back, not for another 12B6 determination, but if you know the court sends it back, at least for a law of the land place claim, there's going to be discovery. There's going to be the building of a factual record. Now, I don't think there's going to be a building of a, of a big factual record for anti-monopoly and anti-special privileges clause claims. Those claims are pretty much purely legal questions, and we think the trial court got it wrong on those as well. You didn't assert a Chapter 75 claim, did you? That's right. So your your claims before us are, are strictly state constitutional claims, all three that's, of them? That's exactly right, just like an Aston Park, Your Honor. Okay, is there some reason why you didn't assert a statutory claim under Chapter 75? Just because Dr. Singleton thinks the system is unconstitutional as applied to him, and so he felt like the constitutional arguments he was making would afford him complete relief. We understand that, but you can assert alternative grounds for relief, too. That's right, Your Honor, and maybe it's a strategic matter we should have, but we brought these three claims, and those are the ones before the court. Okay. Let's look at those in the light most favorable to you. You mentioned the standard of review under a motion dismissed for failure to state a claim. That's what, that's why you're here. Yes, Your Honor. And uh, you mentioned the standard of review, the way what we're supposed to look at and what the trial court is supposed to look at. And that is we take all the allegations alleged in the plaintiff's control. It's true. We construe them in the light most favorable to the 
the plaintiff, correct? Yes, Your Honor. And we, the court would have to find there are no set of facts in light of those in, in which you're entitled to relief. Exactly right. Okay. Yes, Your Honor. Right. So given that's how you're here and that's the standard you're asking us to apply to these three claims, do you want to walk through each one of these individually or how do you want to proceed on those? What I'd like to do is explain why the factual allegations in our complaint stated an as-applied claim under the North Carolina Rational Basis Test for our law of the land claim, and then I'd like to explain why the trial court just got it legally wrong on Article I, Section 32 and 34. So for Article I, Section 19, all Dr. Singleton was required to allege was that the con law doesn't, as applied to him, doesn't rationally further public health. And he did that again and again in his complaint. He did it in paragraph four when he alleged that preventing him from entering this market doesn't have any real-world benefits to patient health and safety. He did it in paragraph 106 when he alleged that there's absolutely no evidence that preventing him from entering this market lowers costs, increases access, or benefits patients in the area. He did it in paragraphs 147 to 149 when he alleged that as applied to him, the law lacks a real, substantial, or even a rational relationship to protecting patients, and the state will be able to produce no evidence to show otherwise. Why is that an attack on the statute itself? It's not. It's an attack on the application to his circumstances. Dr. Singleton is saying, I qualify for a facility license today. My operating room is ready to go. I know that I can charge lower prices than offered by Carolina East because I'm operating under a very limited exemption, which allows me to serve some patients in my operating room without getting a con, and those patients have all benefited from far lower prices and increased access to care. But isn't that exactly the type of analysis that would be undertaken in a CON application competitive bid process, weighing the various criterion to determine which applicant should, in fact, receive the CON? Perhaps, Your Honor, but the problem here is that the state hasn't declared a need for a new OR in this area for at least a decade, and we only say a decade in our complaint because that's as far back as the state's online records go, and there's no con available today. There won't be one at the very earliest, 2025. And so we're talking about at least a 15-year period where categorically nobody can enter the market and nobody can even apply for a certificate of need. Dr. Singleton is banned from the market, and in Aston Park itself, the Supreme Court said, when the government goes beyond regulation to actually banning somebody or excluding somebody from entering a market, the police power is severely curtailed. That's the language in Aston Park. And so what we're saying here is that Dr. Singleton states a claim under the rational basis test because he's alleged that as applied to him, this law isn't actually doing anything to benefit the public today. And I think under the Toomer case that this court decided in 2002, under the rational basis decision decided under 12b-6, and this court said that the plaintiff's factual allegations were sufficient to, quote, overcome the high level of deference according to governmental action on rational basis review. If the Toomer claim— Excuse me just a minute. Let me make sure I want to clarify one thing. There are actually two licenses at issue here. One is Dr. Singleton's license as a provider, correct? As a licensed medical doctor who provides the services. And the other is a facility, a certification of the facility, correct? Well, there's another layer there. So there's his medical license. There's a facility license under the ASFLA, which is what he wants to obtain, and he could obtain because his facility is accredited by the relevant— And under your allegations, we're going to take that as true. 
Okay. Yes. Okay. So let's get to the let's get to the the state's ability to regulate the facility licensing, as opposed to him as a doctor, or as opposed to him meeting some other objective standards, which we've got to presume is true. Right. And the, the third layer I was about to describe, Your Honor, is that there's a facility license, but there's a precondition on getting a facility license, and that's where the con law kicks in. And it was the exact same in Aston Park. In Aston Park, the Supreme Court noted and explained the whole prior con law in the first part of the opinion. And the court says the prior con law conditioned ability to get a facility license for hospitals on obtaining a certificate of need. The need determinations were made on an area by area basis, just like in this law. And the Medical Care Commission in that case, just like the state, just like the Department of Health and Human Services here, said there's no need for your services. Sorry, you lose. Over the years, procedures that used to be done in hospital because the surgical suites were done in offices now, correct? Some of them, yes. And how did that come about? Does your client have an alternative means to try to get a certain list of services that are currently listed as requiring a surgical center to be done in his office practice? Well, if the point your honor is asking is about the when this kind of developed in the law um, in late 80s. No, here's my question. If there's certain procedures he wants to do in his office that are currently required to be done in a surgical and operating room, isn't there another avenue he would have to try to, quote, remove those services so that he could do those within his office practice? I don't think there's an avenue for him to do these services in his practice now because the way is, I mean, he wants to offer outpatient eye surgeries. And these surgeries are regulated by the Ambulatory Facility Licensure Act and by the con law. He has to get a con for an operating room. For his if, his, if his, if his uh, profession would say, no, these are safe to be done within a office practice and we don't need a, an operating room. Is that not another avenue that he could achieve what he would want? I'm not sure that that exists in the law right now, Your Honor. I mean, maybe if that was, if that was a law that was passed and it allowed him to do this, then that would be great for him. But that's not how the law works. Well, let me ask you this. Who determines what can be done in an office and what must be done in a surgical suite? Well, this, I mean, it goes back to the definitions of um, what constitutes uh, surgeries that, and, and surgical facilities in the comma itself. And so the way that the law defines these surgeries is that it's outpatient surgery uh, for less than 24-hour admittance and slight, slight oversight afterwards. And these types of surgeries have to be done in either a licensed facility, like a hospital, or an ambulatory surgery facility. And in order to do that in this facility right now, he has to have a certificate of need for an operating room. None is available, so he can't do it. Well, the dentist used to say you had to do two teeth whitening in a dental office with a dental president, did he not? Yes, sir. And didn't the U.S. Supreme Court says no? And that was a North Carolina case, right? Well, I, the North Carolina dental case, Your Honor, I mean, that, that was about, um, to my knowledge, that was about uh, a regulatory capture by a, a licensing agency. Um, but, but the doctors are trying to say this this procedure must be done in a dentist office under the care of a, of a licensed dentist, correct? Well, Dr. Singleton can do them in his facility. Right? He can do that right now if he got a con for the operating room, but none is available. It's not a question of where he can do the procedures. He can do them in hospitals, he can do them in a licensed ambulatory surgery facility. He just can't do them in his facility right now because the con requirement prohibits him from doing that. 
And I guess what I don't really understand is, maybe I'll ask opposing counsel to comment on this too, but I don't understand why there's not a procedure that he could remove a certain class of services from the operating room to his office without disturbing the need for an additional surgical room. That's what, that's what I'm asking. I, I, that would certainly be helpful for him, Your Honor. I'm sorry, I'm not aware of that procedure existing in the con law right now. Um, so but that would come from the practice, not from the con statute, correct? Possibly, Your Honor, but the surgeries that he wants to perform, according to the con statute and the ASFLA, have to be done in licensed facilities. And to have a license, you have to have a con. And that's the problem here. So, so his facility in his office is also a licensed facility, correct? Well, it's not licensed right now. The problem is, the problem is that he wants to have his OR license under the ASFLA, and he can't. Here's my question. He's licensed as a physician, as a provider. Oh, that's right, yes. His office, his current office is also licensed as a facility. It's not. It's not, Your Honor. In order, you know, he wants it to be. That's what this case is about. He's licensed as a facility. He just cannot do certain procedures within that facility as licensed. No, Your Honor. The facility itself is accredited, but it's not licensed. In order to get a license, you have to have AAASF, like our accreditation, which is a long acronym. But in order to have that license, let me ask you this: How does he get paid for procedures he does in his office if it's not an accredited office facility? Well, this isn't part of the complaint, Your Honor. But he, I mean, he has a relationship with a private insurance company that reimburses some of his patients on the margins. The ones he does in his office right now, he's doing under this exemption from the con law for incidental procedures, which means marginal procedures done on the margins, not as a regular part of his practice. What he wants is a facility license so he can make these procedures a regular part of his practice. And the only entity in Craven Jones Pamela right now that can have that license is Carolina East. That's been true for over a decade and it will be true for at the very earliest 2025. Now, is there only one operating theater in those three counties? Yes, Your Honor, it's Carolina East. That's it? That's right. There's no other hospital or another, no other surgical suite, correct? There is one, and there has only been one for as long as the state's records show. Could he go to the adjoining county and practice his profession? Could he go somewhere else? Possibly if there was a need to turn. You mean open up an office, Your Honor? Maybe if he moved his practice. He could go to a different county, go to a different um, county to do the procedures there. Oh, he as a surgeon can go where he wants as a surgeon. That's my point. Exactly right, yes. But he can't use his own property his own facility to help his patients and provide cheaper, more affordable, safe care for them. What he's trying to do is expand access to care, and the law tells him he can't do that, and that is actively harming patients today, as we've alleged in our complaint over and over and over again. That's not a legitimate use of the police power, at least in an as-applied challenge. Now, Dr. Singleton brings two claims that weren't even brought in the Pope case that Your Honor asked about earlier. He brings Article 1, Section 32, anti-special anti privileges, and Article 1, Section 34, anti-monopoly. Are you familiar with the case of, um, and this is for both counsel, uh, DeSurry versus the Charlotte-Mecklenburg Hospital Authority? I'm vaguely familiar with the case, yes, sir. It's a 2020 U.S. Uh, North Carolina Supreme Court case? Yes, Your Honor. Neither one of y'all cited in either one of your briefs. That's right. Doesn't it have some applicability to this on how we would interpret the law? I don't think it does, which is why we didn't cite it. 
I'm not sure why the state didn't cite it, but the reason we didn't cite it is that it's a case about a what the court called a vertical monopoly, which is what was addressed in a different case the state didn't cite called American Motor Sales. Aston Park, as American Motor Sales explains, is about a horizontal monopoly, which means a monopoly within an area between providers of the exact same service. And in De Cesare, at footnote nine, the Supreme Court says, in light of our agreement that the facts at issue in this case are materially different from those at issue in Aston Park, we will refrain from commenting on its continuing validity. And so the Supreme Court- The opinion does have an extensive analysis of Article I, Section 34. You do agree with that? It does, yes. And you, and you have an Article I, Section 34 claim before us. So that's right, yes. And the reason we didn't cite it is because it doesn't, it's not the same kind of case. It's the same kind of case that American Motor Sales discussed, which is about vertical monopolies. And again, American Motor Sales distinguished Aston Park as about horizontal monopolies. And there's a lengthy analysis in American Motor Sales about how the whole point of Article I, Section 34 was to prohibit horizontal monopolies. And that's the exact kind of monopoly this court addressed in the Rockford Cohen Group case in 2013, which is why that's the case we cite, because it's the most analogous to this one, where the state says, nobody can, everybody's banned from this market unless you get permission from the Commissioner of Insurance to provide bail bondsman training. And while previously anybody could apply, we're gonna change the law and say, actually, only members of one special trade group get to apply, and everybody else is excluded, and that constitutes a monopoly. This case is exactly the same. Dr. Singleton wants to get this facility license. It's conditioned on his ability to get a con, and he can't get a con because none is available, none has been available for over a decade, none will be available for at least 2025. That's an exclusion from the market. And that same principle runs through all the anti-monopoly cases we cite. Go back to State versus Call, one of the very earliest North Carolina Supreme Court decisions involving monopoly. That was a challenge to medical licensing. And the plaintiff said, anybody who's a licensee has a monopoly over the profession. Well, the Supreme Court said, no, it's not, because the door is open to all. Anybody who studies hard enough and is an adult can get the license. Well, that's not true here. Dr. Singleton can't just work hard and get this permission. He has to wait and wait and wait, and he's been waiting since 2003, and there's been no con available. And the same was true, by the way, in Aston Park. In Aston Park, again, the court said the prior con law, which said there was no need for Aston Park services, created a monopoly in the existing hospitals because Aston Park was categorically excluded. Let's look at attorneys. Attorneys are licensed by the state, too, correct? Yes, Your Honor. Their offices are not licensed, the individual provider's license, correct? Right. But let's say an attorney says, Judge, I don't want to come to court. I want to phone in from my office. And the judge will say, no, we're going to have the trial at court. You're going to have to come here if you want to practice in this case. What's wrong with that? Well, what's wrong with that is that there's nothing wrong with it inherently. It's not the same as a con, though. But they're telling you you've got to do certain professional procedures at a certain place. Well, what they're not doing is saying that you can't perform any professional procedures at your own place. You can't try jury trials without being in the courtroom. That's true. It's an inherently government function. This is not a government function. This is a private service. Healthcare is a private service. And that's exactly what the Supreme Court said in the Foster case. One of the driving sort of policy determinations of the COM law is that we don't want, we want to encourage providers to go find areas of the state that have a need for those services rather than have a glut of services all in one part of the state just because it's a great market for it. We want to encourage 
providers to find. We want to incentivize providers to go find places where there is, in fact, a need. Right. So how is that not simply a, a policy determination? How is well, that a constitutional thing, not a policy determination? Well, I'll answer your question. I know that I, I ran out of time for my opening, so I'd like to reserve those 10 minutes and I'll answer the question. Um, it's not a policy determination. Well, one thing to note, by the way, is that the common law is not actually working out in that sense in Crazy Jeff's family, which is where his lawsuit is focused. We've said there's only one provider. The common law says there's only one provider. How is that helping people in the rest of the counties in Craven Jones, Pamlico? There's a provider in Newburn and nowhere else in the entire planning area has been that way for 25 years. That's not expanding access to care. It's concentrated care. The common law is doing the opposite of what it says it's supposed to be doing. And a law that thwarts its own purposes and harms the public is not a legitimate use of the police power. We'll reserve the, uh, the rest of your time for your rebuttal. Thank you, thank, thank you very much. Argument from the state. I noticed you have numerous counsel there. Have y'all, are you going to divide your time or? It'll just be me, Your Honor. Okay. You may proceed. Good afternoon, Your Honors, and may it please the court. My name is Nick Rode. I'm in the Department of Justice, appearing on behalf of the defendants. Healthcare is one of the most complex, heavily regulated, and politically contested markets in our economy. Everyone disagrees about healthcare. How to best design a healthcare system that balances costs, quality, and access, among many other factors, is an endlessly challenging policy question. But this case is not about healthcare policy. The narrow legal question in this case is whether the Certificate of Need law is rationally related to the legitimate government interest in protecting public health. It undoubtedly is. Just 10 years ago in Hope, this court held that the CON law passes the rational basis test. Nothing has happened in the short time since Hope to change that conclusion. The, the way you framed that issue it, it raised a question for me, and that is, do, do you agree that the claim asserted here is an as-applied challenge versus a facial challenge? Your Honor, I agree that this is an as-applied challenge. It was also an as-applied challenge that the court considered in Hope. Um, but I do think, to your earlier question, if you were to agree with Plaintiff's theory here that an as-applied challenge could proceed past the 12 v. 6 stage, it would have the practical effect of facially invalidating the law. And the reason for that is any provider across the state could come into court without having gone through the agency process and ask for an exemption from the CON law um, on, on a 12 v. 6. So I think that would effectively facially invalidate the, the law. It is a key problem with my friend's theory on, on the other side of this case. I think from my friend's perspective, the fact that they've brought an as-applied challenge is somehow a ground for giving them an exemption to the CON law. But of course, as I said, I think any provider on that theory could come into court, make allegations, which I'm happy to accept as true, that they provide high-quality, low-cost care, um, and, and, and that would produce an exemption from the CON law. It would have the practical effect of facially invalidating the law. It would produce a exemption from the CON law at the 12B6 stage, they still have to win at court, right? Your Honor, that's true. I mean, I, I do want to go back to Hope, though, because I think Hope clearly, clearly holds, clearly holds that on the pleadings, on the pleadings, which is essentially the position we're in here, the CON law is essentially the position. This is 12B6. All, all the factual allegations are taken as true and construed in the interest of the plaintiff in the case. It's a different standard than, than a, a judgment on the pleading. 
Your Honor, I agree that it's a different standard. I think the difference is that in both contexts there hasn't been discovered yet. And, and I think that's maybe the, the, the critical point here from my perspective. I don't think that you need discovery to conclude that the CON law is rationally related to the legitimate government interest in protecting public health in light of what this court held in hope. Well, that would be purely a fake. You cannot dismiss an as-applied challenge using a facial standard of review. What you just said is a facial standard of review. Your Honor, I think hope is an as-applied challenge, and all I'm asking is for you to apply this court's decision in hope. In hope, on an as-applied challenge, this court held that the CON law passes the rational basis test. And I'm asking the court to apply that holding in the context of this case. I acknowledge that my friends on the other side have made some particular allegations related to the services that they provide, but I don't think those allegations are relevant in light of the rational basis test. The rational basis test asks only whether the law is rational. And if the law is rational, it can be enforced without exception, even if applied to a particular regulated entity, the enforcement of the law might seem unfair or over-inclusive or under-inclusive. Rational basis review allows for laws to be imperfect. It allows for them to be over-broad or under-inclusive. It doesn't require mathematical precision. And I think that's- You would accept that basis there could never be a challenge. I don't think that's true, Your Honor. I think there could be an as-applied rational basis challenge to a law that was just so far off the grid that it was inherently- Well, one surgical center for the last 15 years seems to be off the grid, taking his allegations as true. So I have two points on that, Your Honor. I think I have a factual point and then a legal point. I think factually, I'm not sure that that allegation is material because it doesn't tell us whether anyone has actually tried- It doesn't make any difference on the 12B6 if it's material or not. I don't think it's true. Your Honor, I'm happy to accept the allegation is true. I don't think it's material to the legal question in the case, which is whether the CON law is rational as applied to the plaintiffs. I don't think the CON law is rational as applied. I think the CON law is rational, excuse me, as applied to the plaintiffs. Does that determination not get made after the 12B6 stage? I think you can make it on the motion to dismiss stage here in light of this court's decision and hope that the CON law is rational. And if the law is rational, I think it can be enforced without exception. I don't think the particulars, the particular allegations that the plaintiffs have made here are relevant under the rational basis standard because, as I said, I think the rational basis standard permits over-inclusivity or under-inclusivity or an imperfect fit. I think that's a very low bar. I think the application of the rational basis standard at this stage would foreclose the possibility of ever bringing an as-applied challenge to the law. Your Honor, I think the CON law in hope was held to pass the rational basis test and I think settled the question of whether the CON law is rational. And did not violate his as-applied. It was two steps there. You first had to see if there's a rational basis for the test. Yes. Then, as applied to this petitioner, does his claim fail to assert a valid claim under any basis? Yes. I don't think that he has stated a claim that can survive a 12B6. Could you give us an example of one that might survive a 12B6 under your theory? Under my theory, 
the CON law is rational, and so it can be enforced without exception. So if, if you're talking about this particular law, no, I, I don't think there can be an as-applied challenge to, to the CON law under a substantive due process theory, and I think that follows inherently from the court's decision in hope. I think in hope, this court held that the law is, is rational. It's rational because of the legislative findings of fact that are set out in detail in section 131E175, which the court walked through in hope. Well, it, what if there was, um, kind of doing this on the fly, so, so bear with me, but what if, you know, what, what if you know, we, we were faced with a case with uh, allegations where the state was actively using the law to make uh, need determinations, that, you know, in a, in a way to, to, to impact the, the doctor, the physician, the provider themselves. I mean, there, I mean, you know, there are ways this, this law could be used, the way, ways this, uh, uh, you know, the, the need determinations could perhaps be abused or misused in order to, um, you know, essentially using the need determinations as kind of a, kind of a front for, for, you know, for, for monopoly. Your Honor, I don't, I don't think that there's anything about the allegations that have been made in this case that allow the plaintiffs to survive the 12B6. I, I think that this court in Pope settled the question that the CON law is rational, and perhaps I could imagine a case in the future where you, you might have facts as Your Honor. Is well, and I think that's, that's sort of the court's question, is, from what I'm hearing, is, you know, it, is there some are there some allegations, are there some pleadings that, that obviously you would contend are not in this case that could give rise to an as-applied challenge down the road that would, you know, that may differentiate it from what sounds kind of like a facial argument? I think the theory would have to be rooted in something other than the theory the plaintiff has, has proceeded on here, which is that there is just no rational reason for this law. And if the theory were that the law were being used or weaponized in some kind of way, I think perhaps that's a different case, and perhaps a theory like that could, could proceed. But I think that in this case, on these allegations, the question is whether the law is rational. The question is whether the law makes sense as a way of regulating healthcare markets. And I think it, it undoubtedly does. Um, I think the findings of fact in this law are particularly important, and I think were particularly important to the court to know. If you look at section uh, 131E175, the legislature made detailed findings of fact about why CON laws uh, improve access to health care, improve quality, and lower costs. And the question in this case is not whether those findings of fact are true or false to some kind of economic certainty. The question here is only whether the legislature could have rationally believed that those findings of fact were true at the time that they passed the law. And if, under, if, if lower costs is a basis to sustain the law, and his allegation says that he can offer the services safely at lower costs, doesn't that undermine the very basis upon which the, the con was put into place to start with? Your Honor, I think this goes back to the point that we were discussing a little earlier, which is that if you accept that the CON law is a rational piece of economic legislation... Let me ask you, do you concede that it's anti-competitive? Uh, no, Your Honor, I don't concede that it's anti-competitive. Do does it limit entrance to the market? It does limit entrance... entrance does it tend to concentrate power in a discrete uh, area with a, a, a discrete provider? 
I think that natural effect of CON laws is yes, it is regulating entry into particular healthcare markets. I don't think that that makes it rational. And it limits the ability of new entrants to come into that market. It, it, it does. It does. I mean, that's even though they're licensed to provide those very services. Yes, Your Honor, that's correct. That's correct. And I think that that is a rational policy choice for the legislature to have made. I think that was a rational policy choice for the legislature to have made because when the General Assembly passed this law, our state was looking at um, a very significant amount of excess provision of healthcare services. Um, there was a case involving mobile uh, PET scan units. You remember that case? Uh, I'm not aware of that. Certificate for need. And we had one provider for the whole state, and they wanted to be an entrant. And you know, the, the one that had the, the con, he had, a, he had a pretty good deal. He was the only one that you could get a mobile PET scan outside of having to go to a hospital. Your Honor, I think that these are policy concerns about the way that the law operates in practice that could be addressed to the General Assembly. And isn't an as-applied challenge the proper way to do that? No, no, Your Honor, I don't think an as-applied challenge is the proper way to bring policy arguments. I think no, not a policy argument, to, to, to bring out a glaring misapplication or a absence of keeping something current isn't an as-applied. He's saying 15 years, no change. One surgical suite. That's the allegations. That is the allegation, and as I said, I'm happy to accept it as true. I think I've given you the best answer that I have on this, which is that... Let's say we disagree with you, and we say that that uh, a as-applied challenge can survive a 12B6. Would you then go forward from that argument as to as, as why the holding of the trial court would still be correct in this case? Uh, sure. So if you rule against me on the merits of the... Uh, of the rational basis challenge. Um, I, I no, let's, let's say we agree with you. There's a rational basis for the statute. However, the pleadings taken as true and the allegations in the light most favorable to the petitioner will survive that 12B6. Right. I mean, I think this, I think this wraps back to the conversation that we've been having. I mean, I think that if you find that the statute itself is rational, there is no way for the plaintiffs to state a substantive due process claim because the, the legislation can be enforced without exception if it's, if it's rational. I, I do want to try to maybe route us back to um, a related issue on this, which is exhaustion. And Judge Hampson's earlier point, which I think is very well taken, which is that a lot of these arguments that have been made under the guise of an as-applied challenge really ought to be routed to the agency. There is an entire administrative process, a process that this court in Hope held is efficient and effective, efficient and effective, a process that's been on the books in the state in one form or another for more than 40 years that could provide the plaintiffs with the relief that they seek in this case. The relief that the plaintiffs seek in this case is that paragraph 21 of their complaint, and it's the right to provide on a full-time basis outpatient eye surgery services at the center. If the plaintiffs went through the established CON process, they could receive that relief, but they did not go through that process here. They did not bring these concerns to the expert agency, the Department of Health and Human Services and the State Health Coordinating Council, and prevented the agency from bringing to bear its considerable expertise in very, very complicated healthcare markets. You raised that issue in the 12B1 at the trial court. The trial court ruled against you. That's right, Your Honor. You did not file a cross appeal in this case. That's right, Your Honor. How is that water not under the bridge? 
How, how is that before us now? It seems to me like the issue was brought before a tribunal, it was ruled on, and it was not appealed from. Your Honor, it was not appealed from, and the administrative exhaustion is a jurisdictional question, and so... I understand that, but hasn't that already been established? You well, didn't appeal it, from that. Would it, would it not also be an ultimate basis for the trial court's That's ruling right. upon which we could, we could affirm or uh, affirm the trial court? That's right. It's an, it's an alternate ground on which you could affirm the trial court. It's a jurisdictional question, so we did not have to take a cross-appeal on the administrative exhaustion question. Um, I think the process that's set out in the CON law um, takes place in, in roughly two steps. Every single year, the um, state medical facilities plan is reevaluated. It's reevaluated on an annual basis. There's a tremendous amount of public input that goes into this plan. Um, uh, the, the council is required under the statute uh, to uh, hold at least seven hearings every year um, over the course of developing the plan. And the plan sets out procedures for individuals to file written petitions with the council in the spring and the summer of every year to make adjustments to the plan that could result in a need determination that would allow those individuals or anyone else to file for a certificate of need. That's a flexible process. That is not a ban. I mean, I heard my friend on the other side say a couple of times that they're banned from entering the market. Every single year, this process, this efficient and effective process, as the court described it in Hope, is open to individuals to seek adjustments to the plan if they think that the plan is not accurately reflecting the reality of healthcare markets. And so How do you respond to their allegation and their complaint that they would have to wait more than two years from that? Yeah. So I, I don't think that that is a correct description of the legal mechanics for applying for and receiving a CON. And, and if I could just try to make this concrete, um, if I could, uh, the plaintiffs here filed the lawsuit in 2020. So instead of filing the lawsuit, they had petitioned the council for an adjustment of a need determination in the summer of 2020. Um, if the council had accepted that petition, um, the plaintiffs could have then applied for a CON in the relevant market in 2021. There would have been a need determination in the plan in 2021, and the plan would have set out a timeline for the plaintiffs or anyone else to file for a certificate of need over the course of 2021. After that certificate of need was received by the department, the department is limited under the statute to 150 days at most, at most, to make a decision on the CON. That's 131E185. Um, and then any administrative review is also limited. So an individual who's affected by the department's decision could file a petition for a contested case hearing. Um, uh, but again, under the statute, um, there's a limit on the amount of time the LJ can take to, to resolve the issue. It's 270 days under 131E188A1. Is that the exclusive challenge that a petitioner would have? I think that's the established route. That that's not my question. My question is, is that the exclusive means to challenge a con, or can they not come into court? After they've exhausted administrative remedies, they can come into court. Yes, Your Honor. But not prior. But not prior. Even on a Chapter 75 claim, a Chapter 95 claim, or even under a constitutional claim? But yes, Your Honor, that's our position. Our position is that administrative remedies, as set out in the regulations and under the CON statute, must first be exhausted before the plaintiffs can bring their constitutional claims in court. And I think on, on an as-applied challenge. On an as-applied challenge, that's exactly right. Because we're talking about how the statute has been applied to this particular living. That's right. When it's an as-applied challenge, the plaintiffs are required to exhaust administrative remedies. And I think that that 
rule makes really good sense because, again, it provides the expert agency with an opportunity to take into consideration all of these concerns that my friends have raised about the unique attributes of the services they seek to provide and the geographic market in which they seek to provide them. It also forces the court to rule on a constitutional question that you might not even need to decide if the plaintiffs were to go through the agency process and receive the CON. If they went through the agency process and received a CON, I mean, this dispute would be moot. And so administrative exhaustion is also a way of um, the judiciary to exhibit you know, restraint and avoid unnecessarily reaching constitutional questions, which is why I think applying administrative exhaustion in this context is particularly, is particularly appropriate. Now, my friends on the other side have made two main arguments about why they don't have to exhaust their administrative remedies, and I would like to address those in turn if I could. The first main argument is that they've sought a declaration that the law is unconstitutional as applied to them in the prayer for relief in their complaint. And so my friends on the other side say, well, the agency can't give us a declaration that the law is unconstitutional. And I think that's, of course, correct. I mean, a court is the only body that can declare a law unconstitutional. But I don't think that matters, because the question of whether you have to exhaust your administrative remedies turns not on the technical relief that you're seeking in the prayer for relief, but the substantive relief that you're seeking in the complaint. So the question is not, does he want a declaration or an injunction or damages? The question is, at the end of the day, what does he really want? What is the substance of what he wants? The substance of what the plaintiffs are, are seeking here, again, is the paragraph 21 of the complaint, and it's the right to provide on a full-time basis outpatient eye surgeries at the center, and the process, as I've described it, could provide the plaintiffs with that, with that relief. So I don't think that the prayer for relief is a way for the plaintiffs to get around or plead around the exhaustion requirement. Let me ask you, I think you're asking this question, hasn't the constitutionality of the con already been decided, and aren't we bound by that facial determination? Your Honor, are you referring to Aston Park? I'm referring to any number of cases where the challenge, where, where the con has been facially challenged and it's been upheld. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, the CON law has been facially upheld against constitutional challenges in the past, and the court is bound by, by those decisions. I agree with that. So he could not get a declaratory judgment to the contrary? He could not get a declaratory judgment to the contrary. That's correct. And if he tried that, he'd have to go to a three-judge court, correct? Uh, that's correct for facial invalidation of the law. Yeah, that's correct. Um, the second, um, Let me uh, ask you one sure. question while I've got you paused a moment. The, um, the Scarney versus the Charlotte Mecklenburg Hospital case, one of the claims that's before us is an Article I, Section 34 claim from the state constitution. That's correct. There's an extensive analysis or two years ago from the Supreme Court on the applicability of that, of that section of the state constitution. Uh, could you explain why you didn't bring this to the court's attention? Your Honor, I think it's not cited in either of the parties' briefs simply because the real question in this case is the application of the Supreme Court's earlier decision in Madison Cable Vision. And I think Madison Cable Vision, which is consistent with that more recent case that you cited, um, is, is really kind of a, a core issue in the case. It's the extent to which this case resembles or does not resemble Madison Cable Vision. I think Madison Cable Vision is a very instructive case. I think in that case, a city ordinance effectively froze the market in place for a particular service for five years, and this court rejected, the Supreme Court, excuse me, rejected an anti-monopoly clause challenge to an ordinance of that kind. And I think that that case is, is 
highly, highly relevant here. I mean, um, as I've discussed, the plan um, is a flexible process that's reevaluated every single year, whereas the ordinance that was upheld by the Supreme Court in Madison Cablevision effectively froze the market for five years. And so I think the factual similarities between this case and Madison Cablevision are why our briefing focused uh, primarily on, on, on that case as a concern study. In the Madison Cablevision case, do you think that there's does, that it matters at all in your analysis that uh, the party that was being sued was a government actor versus the private sector? I don't think that distinction matters, Your Honor. I mean, I think the court's analysis um, proceeds, proceeded on the assumption that private actors potentially could, in fact, come into the market after that five-year sort of freeze-out that was at issue in Madison Cablevision. And again, I think that that five-year timeline is really important here because the plan is reevaluated on an annual basis. And so this isn't the kind of case where you have, for an extended period of time, government insulating or foreclosing a market from, from competition. Do you agree that the state constitution has a public policy against, in favor of competition and against monopolistic behavior? I agree with that, yes. And isn't that the basis of chapter 75 as well? Uh, yes. So we would have to validate this against that stated policy that we want free competition in, in our commercial activities, correct? Yes. Um, you've got about two more minutes. I'm, I want to give you a moment to sum up, and if you'd like to reiterate some arguments or to sum up. Sure. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, I think just in, in closing, I would reiterate that the rational basis test is a low bar. It is an appropriately low bar because it reflects judicial deference on matters of economic policy to the General Assembly. The General Assembly has been actively amending and thinking about this law for more than 40 years. The findings, in fact, have been amended on a number of occasions. The law was amended uh, just as recently as last year. There have been commissions that have been set up by the General Assembly to study the effectiveness of the law. I take the point that the law might not be perfect. I think the changes to the law should come through the legislative process, not through as-applied substantive due process litigation. We respectfully request the court. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Rebuttal? Yes, Your Honor. I just have a few points in response, and then I'd like to leave the court with a few thoughts. First of all, I agree with my friend that um, this case isn't about policy. Um, you know, ultimately, the founders decided that monopolies were against the state's policy, as Your Honor noted. Founders decided that special privileges granted not in consideration of public services are against the policy of the state, and they're granted our fundamental law. It's not something legislatures can just choose to do because they think it's important or good. It's something the founders said is not allowed in this state. Now, in terms of do what you at least agree that that argument's been raised and answered as it relates to the statute on a facial challenge? I would not agree that the statute's constitutionality has been decided in a facial manner as, of, as regards Article 1, Section 32 and 34. The last case on those provisions is Aston Park, which struck down the state's prior con law for the exact same reason we're saying we should prevail and survive a motion to dismiss here, which is that the hospital in that case, Aston Park, was excluded from the relevant market and it couldn't enter, nothing it could do. Same thing is true here for Dr. Singleton. Now, as my friend mentioned, the rational basis test is a low bar. True. Guess what also is a low bar? Ray says that the pleading standard is the lowest bar we have. 
Right, rational basis, 12v6 is the lowest bar we have. And so at this point, our allegations taken as true, I think do state a claim, an as-applied claim under the rational basis test. Now, it's also not true that there's no way to bring out an as-applied challenge to the con law. Um, I prefer the court to the Brit case. Brit is extremely helpful here. Brit is an as-applied challenge to a statute that banned felons from possessing firearms, an incredibly important public interest as a state, which is public safety from gun violence. And no one would deny that law rational, at least on its face. But the plaintiff in that case brought an as-applied challenge. He got it to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court applied the rational basis test, as this court has later said. And the plaintiff made a showing, what the court called an affirmative demonstration, that as applied to them, the law failed the rational basis test because they were rehabilitated. They never hurt anybody while possessing guns. And if it's, if it's true that a plaintiff in a case involving potential gun violence can show that they should prevail on an as-applied claim on the merits, surely we can prevail at a 12 v. 6. Now, um, regarding exhaustion, uh, exhaustion isn't required here. This court said in Good Hope Hospital that in order to challenge the constitutionality of the con law, under Aston Park, no less, that was the exact issue in that case. A plaintiff can't do it through the administrative process. They have to sue under the Declaratory Judgments Act. That's what this court said in 1985, a hospital group of Western North Carolina. In the Good Hope case, on which the state relies, the court decided on the merits, on the merits, 12 v. 6, but on the merits, the plaintiff's equal protection challenge to an application of the con law. So it went past the state's exhaustion argument in that case and decided on the merits a substantive constitutional question because, precisely because, a plaintiff doesn't have to exhaust when a case involves substantive constitutional questions like this. Now, exhaustion would also be not required here because it is not an adequate remedy built into the con law. The way the law works right now, Dr. Singleton would have to petition for an adjustment to the new determination. I disagree with my friend about the application of that provision. The con law says, uh, in every state medical facility plan, says that the petition that you could file would adjust the future SMFP, the proposed SMFP, which would go into effect the next year, and we know that the determinations are made two years in advance. And so if Dr. Singleton files a petition today to adjust next year's SMFP, that will create a need two years from then. After that point, that's 2025, after that point, Dr. Singleton could then initiate a multi-year long process, as this court well knows, dealing with appeals from con decisions. But, but, but you said in your primary argument, you're not challenging the timeline. This is true. You're not, our concern is not the timeline with which it was. That's exactly right, but this is, I'm making this point on exhaustion. My point is that it's not an adequate remedy for his, by the way, the relief, relief he's requesting, requesting is the ability to apply for a facility license. We allege that in paragraphs 128 to 129 of our complaint. He wants to apply for a facility license today. He qualifies today. He can't apply because the con says there's no need for it. And there's no way he can get a facility license for years and years and years. The way this process would work is he'd have to wait until 2025, hypothetically, if there's a need in 2025, and then fight with Carolina East for several more years, spending tens of thousands of dollars, fighting with a billion dollar hospital to break up its monopoly. So is the, is the challenge here then, is it, is it to the, the CON law writ large, or is it simply to the need determination? The challenge is to the application of this law in this county, which is that there's no need, there hasn't been a need for over a decade, and there won't be a need for at least 2025, and I'm willing to bet much longer than that. The challenge is to the application of this law in this area right now. Because, because you're, what I'm hearing is your argument is not that, that Dr. Singleton shouldn't have to even have a CON 
to, to, to enter the market. Your argument is that the, the need determination itself should be overturned or, or declared you know, as, applied, as appliedly unconstitutional, and, and he should be given the opportunity to apply for a CON. An immediate, an immediate CON. Oh, why? I think our argument is that the con law, as applied against unconstitutional, because it's based on based on need determination. It says that because a hospital two miles away from him is already operating, he can't operate. It says that because of his proximity to somebody else operating private service, he can't operate his own private service. So just throw the gates open to surgical centers in, in, the, in this region. Just anybody can now show up and open a surgical center in this particular region. Well, Possibly, but the, but the as-applied relief we're requesting is an injunction that would apply only to him. As-applied challenges, as the Supreme Court said in Brick, so he, can, so he can preserve his own competitive advantage. Well, it's not about preserving his own competitive advantage. It's just that an as-applied challenge, as the court said in Brick, they all depend on their own facts. And so I don't know the facts of the plaintiff not before the court, and so we're asking for is relief that would apply specifically to our client. Um, now, as, as regards Article 1, Section 32 and 34, the rational basis test doesn't apply to those provisions. Um, it didn't apply in Aston Park. In Aston Park, the structure of the complaint is pretty clear. The court said the law violates Article 1, Section 19, explained its reasoning. The law violates Article 1, Section 32 and 34, explained its reasoning. And the reasoning that follows Section 32 and 34 is that Aston Park was excluded from the market. It couldn't come in, and that created a monopoly. Now, Carolina East has the only uh, CON in that three-county area. Exactly. Can Carolina East continually expand the services that it offers and prevent another CON from ever being uh, issued? By obtaining continual contracts? Just, just continuing to expand its operation to minimize the need. Well, no, for, no, for, for the operating rooms, I don't think so. I mean, there's, there would have to be a need for a new R for it to expand. Uh, it can replace existing facilities without having to get a contract. Because uh, the CON would be limited to a number of, of beds or, or whatever the, the that, measurement is. That's right, Your Honor. Uh, I just want to address Madison Cablevision. I think it's an important case, but I disagree with my friend on his application here. Madison Cablevision, as this court said in Rockford Cohen Group in 2013, is distinguishable from a case like this because in Madison Cablevision, the city hadn't foreclosed for, for any period the possibility that somebody could apply for and obtain a franchise. And yes, I agree with Judge Carpenter, distinguishable because it involved a government entity, or at least the implication of the question. But ultimately, this court's already addressed Madison Cablevision. It said it's distinguishable because it didn't involve a complete exclusion for any period of time. This law does involve a complete exclusion for a period of time, right now and for at least a decade prior to today. Yeah, I'll give you a moment to sum up. Thank you, Your Honor. Your Honor, just in closing, Dr. Singleton opened his practice in 2004. Since then, he could have helped countless patients get more affordable access to eye surgeries. But year after year, the con law told him no. As a result, his patients have either had to pay over three times as much at Carolina East, delay their procedures that they needed that day or that moment, or go without care entirely. If this system, a quintessential monopoly that actively harms patients with no end in sight, doesn't even possibly violate the North Carolina Constitution, it's hard to see what would. This court should reverse trial court's 12B6 decision, affirm its 12B1 decision, and give Dr. Singleton a chance to prove his case on the merits. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, that concludes our arguments. Uh, Mr. Mayor, uh, will you, uh, you, you adjourn court? Yes, All right. This session of the North Carolina Court of Appeals is adjourned.